I'm Damon Ocko, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, our two podcasts last month highlighted how important it is for people to reconnect to enduring values and beliefs, both their own and the ones of the communities of which they are a part. You know, especially in the shadows of the pandemic, individuals and communities alike are taking stock of where they find themselves and looking to anchor to purpose. So I hope our Parish Connection episode with Bert Blair and Terry Roper and conversation with Parish alumni parent and CEO Ann McCurgy enabled you to reflect on your own connection to mission and purpose. As our year-long exploration around the theme of reconnect and reset continues, though, we will shift focus this month to ponder the state of relationships post-pandemic. Wondering, for example, has the social distancing associated with the pandemic impacted our relationships with one another, and if so, how? Has the experience of the last 18 months reset our expectations for friendship or not? Moving forward, what aspects of healthy relationships should we foster? And how can we do this as individuals and as those who are raising or teaching children? Our reflection upon questions like these will begin with an expert in the field of children and relationships, Dr. Kelly Jamison. Then later this month, as our 50th anniversary at Parish continues, I'll bring you another in our Parish Connection series of episodes, this one featuring members of Parish Episcopal's first graduating class in 2007. With these parish alums, I will return to the origins of their parish friendship and consider what conditions have allowed their connections to one another to endure in the nearly two decades since they left parish. Let us begin then by digging into relationships and friendships in the post-pandemic, technology-infused, hyper-busy days in which we live. Dr. Kelly Jameson is a therapist and speaker who works with individuals young and old here in Dallas. Her areas of insight and expertise are broad and deep, covering topics around mental health, self-care, and personal growth. Dr. J is not only an expert in mental health and a professional now in that field, but is also a former parish employee as she taught middle school social studies for us in our early expansion years before she set out to pursue her private practice. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kelly Jamison. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle podcast, and I am so grateful and thrilled to have an old friend, Dr. Kelly Jamison, with me today to talk about reconnecting to relationships. We've done a lot around mission and purpose in the last month, and so this month, in the month of November, I want to talk about how the pandemic and the last 18 months of uh, social uh, upheaval and civil discourse, which has been less than um, less than rosy and flowering, how has all that changed how we relate to one another? So, no better person and the local expert, the local therapist, Dr. Kelly Jameson. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Dave. We Good toured, to be back. Yeah, we toured around a little bit, we as did. we'll find out. Kelly's got a history here with us as a former employee, so we got to tour around. It took a while because everyone wanted to say hi. Oh, sweet. <laughs> well, there's a lot to see, people and building. Yes, a lot of new space here and all of that. So without jumping too far ahead of your introduction, you know, I like guests to come on and tell me a little bit about how they, aden- how they identify, because you're a lot of things. You're a mm-hmm. therapist former educator, your mom, yeah, spouse. So yeah. when you meet somebody at the cocktail party and they say, hey, Kelly Jameson, who are you? Yeah. How, do you how, how do you identify? Right. 
Well, I sometimes like to say I'm a Kentucky-grown, extroverted, last-born of three daughters. And that is a, kind of a mouthful right there. And mm-hmm. then I'll sometimes say, you know, I'm a three on the Enneagram and an ESFJ. And, um, Get into the, st- the yeah, types? Yeah, it kind of depends, like, what people are into. And then that's usually good conversation. That gets you going. Some people want to talk. Oh, Molly, my wife from Kentucky. So you that's might want right. to go down that route. Or exactly. somebody may want to talk to you about being an extrovert. Yep. I'm more of an ambivert, which means... In the middle. A little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Introvert mm-hmm. and extrovert. So that's a great way to do it. Yeah. Then, sorry, you didn't even use mom. Yeah, no, and that's like, you know, identity number one. <laughs> it is, and usually the place that we all want to go and, and have conversation with each other. But part of your identity is as an individual who moved here um, uh, in, in younger days, as we all were. We arrived, and you showed up on the doorstep of this place as literally. it was literally on the doorstep, <laughs> as it was literally starting its expansion phase. Yeah. Right? It was 2003. Yeah, two thousand and three. Camps had just moved here. Just just opened. Oregon. Uh huh. Getting my master, finishing my masters. I flew here for my interview for my PhD program at TWU. That afternoon, my mother-in-law drove me around to all the schools, and I literally just cold called, like literally walked in the front door. So I went into Good Shepherd, and the lady said she leaned over the front desk and she said, "Um, "You should go down the street to Parish." And I said, "Okay." She said, "They just bought some gigantic building." And they're probably hiring a lot of people. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, thank you so much. That's and a great story. drove down the road. Yeah. And um, Joni Rathbun. Yes. Is she still here? She is okay. as an yes. assistant at the Hillcrest campus she in Lower School. She came out yeah. and chatted with me for a little bit, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So 2003, that would have been the year, if you came the 3-4 school year, that would have been the year that the middle school 7th and 8th grade programs were getting going, and the ninth grade program was starting. Um, that year yes, too. That's right. That's so right. you came in having experience as a teacher at that point. Had you already taught, or you'd been in grad school completely? I had taught sixth grade for one year in Hawaii, just on a whim, and then I was a TA in grad school. Yeah, and so really, you just they they just kind of got th- thrown into the spot where they needed you. And yes. Gloria was immensely talented at finding people, mm-hmm. and even if she didn't have a spot figuring out where to put good people. Our cohort that year was insane. Yeah. Like, that was the Scott Natty, Stuart Cheppy, yeah. like, Frederick Holtz. We all started the same yeah, year. Yeah, that founding faculty in the upper school all started uh, all started that year. And she would find people, literally, whose backgrounds were not symmetrical necessarily with the uh, mm-hmm. position needed. And she would in, find them endearing in a way that um, spoke to her. Mm-hmm. And then she'd find a place to put them. You know, and that's how so she operated much very much on, um, I think, very much on intuition and f- and feel was how, how was how Glow did it. So um, what memories have you carried with you? You know, you you left here about six, six years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So w- what memories of Parish have endured for you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, that first year we were here in 2003, it was the wild, wild west of the Midway campus. I mean, there were hallways that were untouched and it was just littered with exxon mobile furniture and you would literally just go shopping and you'd find a bookcase or a desk and you would just wheel it to your classroom it was it was so much fun yeah so you really remember that startup vibe i remember the startup vibe any anything and everything was possible it was so much fun so i love that um still have really nice thoughts about daily chapel not sure i appreciated it Mm -hmm. 
you know, doing that every day, but reflectively, it was really special. Yeah, now somebody who speaks on mindfulness and, and wellness all the time, you're like, that's a, that's a good strategy. Yeah, Take those, 20 minutes yeah, off in the middle of your day. Yeah, important. Yeah. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as a fifth grade teacher, camp class in. Mm. I don't know if y'all still do they that. Don't. They don't. They go to they go to Enterprise City, but just so one fun. of the grade level the grade level trips. First time those kids had been away from home usually. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of funny stories. Yeah, it's a big deal. And the seventh grade leaves uh, as we record this. The seventh grade leaves next week for Catalina, Catalina. so they have their nice. big experience coming up. And it's funny you mentioned that spirit of possibility. The same, the same. Um, uh, characteristic of parish that when I interviewed in 2008 preceding arrival in 2009 spoke to me about the place and that I still speak to today um, as I uh, as a as a um, fiber of of parish that has to stay strong and that I think um, differentiates us even as we've gotten older and having just spent this last month talking about how we reconnect to purpose you know when folks come here I think that's something that they still really sense in the place that's cool that you that you referenced this, but on to the reconnect topic of this month, which is around relationships and really what we've all experienced and how they may differ or not differ as a result of the pandemic. So um, you work with people of a variety of ages. I know you said you prefer kind of 13 and up, but mm-hmm. you, you run you run the gamut. It's, how are you assessing the mindset of people these days after 18 months of the pandemic disruption, you know, the inflamed civil discourse, expressions calling for social justice, like where are people's mindsets that you're, Mm -hmm. that you're interfacing with? I mean, you know, we psychologists call it basically like the biggest human experiment in mental health ever. We could not have studied this better than to make people stay at home and really be alone with their thoughts Mm -hmm. because we're all very busy. And we're very good at hiding our broken parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we can check our email 8,000 times a day and not have to think about how we really feel. So for us, it really highlighted people's coping mechanisms. And it was really, do you have positive coping mechanisms or do you have negative coping mechanisms? Mm. So, you know, there's always people that ordered the Peloton. You know, like who ordered the Peloton during quarantine? Like the, we're going to put those in the positive coping mechanism camp. And then those that... You know, had a bottle of wine every mm-hmm, night and, mm-hmm. you know, binge Netflix for days at a time. We're putting them in the negative coping mechanism camp. So for us, it was really a study in how mm-hmm. well people really take care of themselves when they have to. Mm-hmm. So for the first time, we were hearing people say, am I depressed? You know, I've never really had to think about mental health before. So I think it helped erase the stigma of mental health because mm-hmm. everyone was forced to think about their own mental health and really what's what is the conversation when you're alone with your thoughts and you don't have to stay busy going to work and meetings and school and church like what what's happening Mm. upstairs for you and that was really interesting to hear on a day-to-day basis so we would we presume those folks in the category of of the positive coping that you discussed um as as you interface with them today are essentially um, unchanged or just kind of they went yeah. from healthy through healthy to healthy yeah. and are not much different whereas mm-hmm. those that were in a negative coping capacity are still trying to unpack mm-hmm. like is or, or is everybody fundamentally different yeah I'll tell you you know a lot of schools are calling one <clears throat> presentations on you know um, self-care and I'll tell you what I observed during the quarantine, you know, and my business didn't change. We just flipped over to virtual. Mm-hmm. So I saw all the same people. The teenagers that I worked with flourished, unless they were highly extroverted or highly perfectionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the teenagers thrived because I was hearing for the first time, you know, I taught myself how to play the ukulele on YouTube. Hmm. I read a book that I never really, I've been wanting to read, but I never have time. Or, you know, they're teaching themselves things they were genuinely interested in on YouTube because they had the time. And they were sleeping more. I mean, for teenagers, it was the best reset and their batteries sort of filled and they were doing things that speak to their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I'm not really worried about the teenagers mm. or the kids. I mean, children are young and resilient and frankly, they haven't lived long enough to recognize what a big deal it was. Yep. My concern hmm. are the adults. I saw a lot of adults that I became increasingly concerned hmm. about. Um, namely moms and women more mm. so than men. Mm. Um, but collectively, I was more shocked, I guess, about the emotional response of adults from the pandemic, more so than the kids and the teenagers. Yeah, fast. several things you said are really compelling. Notably, my dis dis disappointment about, man, I know we're filling those schedules right back up again for kids. <laughs> so yeah. I know you You say you don't worry about them, and that's a great thing. And in a way, I don't either. But I also feel like, man, are we going to put them right back into the rat race, which is you know the busy the busy lives that we parents and educators create for them um and the and the elements of of gender experience of the pandemic is a fascinating one too for another conversation yeah. but more specifically like this idea of relationship so you we go through this we coped with it in one way or another but we all experience disconnection socially for a period of time mm -hmm. right some more than others depending on how uh, careful they were with the virus and and so now everybody's returning to a, an emergent stage of, of normal and there are a lot of theories out there i'm sure you're seeing and we, we educators are too around um the very skills that one needs to to have successful relationship with others uh became muted or, or less practiced so some schools are really doubling down on how to foster effective relationships because kids just didn't practice them very much. Mm -hmm. You, mm -hmm. as a therapist, might identify with kids who were so happy to be in that state of, of authentic self and, mm -hmm. and uh, doing the things that they loved. Now experiencing more social anxieties, they return to yeah. the normal setting no again. Like yeah. so, so talk to me about uh, and and we came to appreciate our relationships more. Like I just miss seeing you. Mm -hmm. Good to see you in person yeah. after X number of months or years. Right. So like, where uh, what have you observed about the impact of the pandemic uh, on relationships specifically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And let's do let's do youth primarily okay, to start. Sure. You know. Yeah. So for teenagers, no question, I have seen a decrease in their social skills and an increase in social anxiety. For sure. Right. So as a therapist, I find myself coaching kids on how to make sure you have a plan after the football game, how to make sure you have a place to be for homecoming. Now remember, they're, they're young people. Like the only thing that's important to them is their sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. Like their identity and their sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. They just want a place to be. Mm -hmm. And then they'll worry about if people want them there later. But they just want a place to be. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so they've missed a developmental chapter, mm -hmm. right? And they all, yes, they all had their phones and their video games, and that's a different form of connection. But I am now coaching them on really simple social skills. But what I'm hearing them say is they're so fearful of rejection. Now remember, in a time of life where you don't want attention drawn to yourself, but you also want to be included, mm -hmm. they're, they're paralyzed by trying to put themselves out there for fear of rejection. So we have the rub of rejection versus belonging. Mm -hmm. And how do you get there mm -hmm. and like sidestep the fears of rejection? Mm -hmm. So 
it's a lot of coaching. I literally give them language on how to ask people at the lunch table, Mm. what's the plan for Friday? Mm. Or what's the plan after the game? Or what do you guys, where's everyone getting ready? Mm -hmm. Or is everyone riding together? Mm -hmm. And the resolution of conflict as well? Are you revisiting that with folks that are just, with young people that have trouble with that? Or is it mostly on this planning the, the yeah, the conflict side. is like traditional. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, she was mean to me. Mm-hmm. He broke up with me. That mm-hmm. hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. I'm doing more mm-hmm. pre-event mm-hmm. conversation because they're just so anxiety-ridden about about the thing. Like, whatever the event is, there's so much anxiety, which, of course, spikes anticipation, anticipation spikes anxiety. So mm-hmm. it's all of this pre... They get themselves so worked up. And you see that as... as- Different than yes, 20, that is different. than twenty twenty March yes. twenty twenty. That just really the volume really of that is different. Yeah. Almost every kid, unless they are just like at their prime socially and they're running the show. Right, those kids generally aren't in therapy. Yeah, right. It's kind of like the outliers or you know the ones that are really worried about their sense of belonging on the weekends. Yeah, yeah. but then like for example, I was talking to a girl this week about how to make sure she has a plan for the weekend. And I said, you know, she's great with a group. And I said, well, we've got to get you one-on-one. Like, can you... So I had her name, like, her five friends that she would feel comfortable doing something with one-on-one. I said, Mm -hmm. okay, why don't you invite her to go to Starbucks to study or, like, go get fat straws or something? Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I have this extracurricular till 6.30, and then I have to go home, and then I have homework, and I have to shower and do dinner. Mm -hmm. It's like there's not even a window of time yeah, so where they can schedule, plug in. That schedule filling in again. That makes one-on-one. It a challenge, too. Which would help the weekend. So you noticed among the adults that the women struggled more coping through the yes. pandemic. So in, in this in this re-entry to relationships post-pandemic or emergent post-pandemic, are you seeing a gender difference there, too? Or are you seeing struggles on both sides of the gender divide? Yeah, both. Um, well, to answer your earlier question, I think... Post-pandemic, adults have pared down their priorities. Mm. Like the young people have sort of jumped back in (laughs) with more Mm -hmm. anxiety for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But it's the adults, I think, that have questioned some relationships and have questioned the volume in which they were running around doing things. Mm. I hear a lot more language around, you know, reevaluating values and how adults spend their time. The level of social engagement that you're talking is still, um, I think what we both agree is kind of the superficial, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to be somewhere. Yep. I just don't want to be home by myself. That's right. I'm watching on social media as everybody else is doing something somewhere, right? Uh-huh. So, so let's move to this level of friendship, which as a middle-aged guy, I find increasingly fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. As we adults have, you know, spent our time immense, immersed with our careers and with uh, raising our family with the time that we're not focused on our careers, in like my case, for example, you may feel the same. So that this notion of, of cultivating friendship versus acquaintanceship is a really interesting one to be reflective on as you reach, it's certainly my time, my time of life, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But nationally, you know, we are seeing incredible amount of data around the loneliness epidemic, so much so the President Surgeon General, Viv Murthy wrote a book called Together and gives if you want a culmination of the of the great stats around this loneliness epidemic, uh, a, a great compilation of it there. So people, though they may be getting to these events ultimately that you coach them toward, young people and older alike mm-hmm. are still feeling a pretty big vacuum when it comes to um, deep senses of connection mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. to others. Yeah. So as you think about your um, 13 to however your oldest client is, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you hear about friendship? Not just social connection, but mm-hmm. friendship. Right. Well, <clears throat> you know, for young people, I'm, I really push the message that friends are fluid at your age. You know, who was your best friend in fifth grade is different than your best friend in eighth grade and 10th grade. And for a lot of these private school kids in Dallas, mm-hmm. I will tell you that, you know, all these schools have like lifers, right? Kids that have been together. I will tell you, those kids really struggle to transition to college mm. because they've never mm. had to make new friends. Yep. And that has been fascinating mm. to watch, just obviously being here at Parish and knowing yep. that this school and every other private school in the area has this lifer culture, mm-hmm. which is great and has so many benefits right. until you have to go to college. And then you're teaching them how to make friends mm-hmm. on a very basic level, right. which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, when I'm working with young people and also adults, I, and yes, a lot of people are lonely and they say they have acquaintances, but no real yep. close friends. Um, I see friends as three categories. You have utility friends, mm-hmm. and this is applicable to young people and adults. For sure. You have utility friends. Those are the ones that are like, hey, can you get the notes for Spanish class? Or hey, can you take my son home after lacrosse? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those are like helpful friends. Yep. And you need a good amount of those. So there's, those are utility friends. Then you have pleasure friends. And those are the ones that when you get together, you have similar interests. Mm-hmm. You know, you like to watch college football mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. like country music or those are pleasure friends. And then you have close friends. Mm-hmm. And close friends are the ones that something bad happens or something's gone sideways in your life. You're calling those people. Mm-hmm. But you kind of need a good amount of each. Mm-hmm. But I think collectively we think of friends as this one term. But when you break it down, it's like, I think we can also, we can all agree that like, yeah, I've got some utility friends. I've got some like pleasure friends and I have a few close friends. Mm -hmm. People feel like if they don't have close friends, they don't have friends. But friends ebb and flow and Mm -hmm. you need different types of friends at different stages of your life. So when we break it down that way, people are like, oh, that makes sense. You know, I have utilitarian friends this way and I have work friends and I have camp friends and I have neighborhood friends and I have church friends. Uh, but I think people panic because they feel like if they don't have a best friend yep. or if they're not going on spring break with eight families, right. that they don't have friends. Yep. Yep. But, you know, friends are fluid. And I, and I encourage people to get away from this idea that you've got your one best friend and the two of you lock it down and you call each other best friends. It's like friends are fluid. It becomes pretty confining, you know, pretty confining that way. I do think this, what they call in the research, durable friendships or, you know, that the, those that, that do persist over the ebb and flow of time, the distance of uh, separation in location, as you referenced, going off to college that mm-hmm. um, can kind of persevere through the years are, um, are the ones that are most intriguing to me at, you know, 54, right? Like, how how is it that how is it that an individual um, can, can secure a relationship and then amidst all the other business of life, continue to 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 cultivate those? And I wonder how the pandemic has, for to a certain degree, either enhanced the ability to do that because we've gotten reconnected, or you leveraged a new virtual technology, mm-hmm. or you just realized, man, I gotta I gotta really take not take for granted these important relationships, or has furthered the you know, mm-hmm. further the, the, the chasm. As you talk with kids about the, the, their friendships, I think your framework uh, of, of, of the, those three buckets is a really, is a really mm-hmm. helpful one. 
getting back to skills like what do you where are you coaching them there that might be different than the ones you're coaching on just how to prepare for the upcoming set of social mm-hmm. you know parameters dynamics yeah. that are coming up or right. are there things that you're coaching around that in terms mm-hmm. of like if you want to be a good friend you know they say be nice be vulnerable <laughs> there's all the aphorisms yeah, we know right. like what yeah. are you sharing are you sharing certain yeah. recommendations with them or, or um, directions well, I'm a big proponent of the authentic self. Yeah. And, you know, your best friends are going to be people whose authentic selves sort of align with yours. So I think young people, they want to be friends with a certain group for superficial reasons. They're still really struggling to define their own identity. Yes. It's just so hard, which is, right? Which is yeah. the whole mission of the chapter of life that they're in. Yeah, I mean, that is right. appropriate. That is developmentally appropriate. Yeah. However, the magic happens when you tap into your authentic self. And then someone else recognizes it and appreciates it or wants to spend time with you when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Like that is where a true friend is going to be. We often think like my fraternity brothers were my best friends or, you know, my camp friends. But, you know, that's just history. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not really a tie that binds. Yeah. Like someone who really knows you as yeah. a person, like knows who you are authentically, mm-hmm. not just head of school yeah, or yeah. dad of a bunch of boys. Yeah. Like. Who knows, like, who you really are on the inside? Yeah. That's where the magic happens. Yeah. But people aren't sure authentically who they are, especially young people. Yeah. Because when they have downtime, they're just picking up their phones. Yeah. So the authentic self is, I'm concerned as a therapist, is, you know, you ask a 17, 18-year-old, what do you like to do for fun? And they say, watch Netflix. Like, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. It's like, well... Okay, who doesn't like to watch a Netflix show here and there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love Ted Lasso too, but mm-hmm. that's not who I am. Right. You know, so it's really getting kids to, and the authentic self is only formed in downtime, which is why the pandemic was so great for it, right? Beautiful. Yeah. Because I asked parents, what did your child do when they didn't have to do anything? Mm-hmm. Outside of picking up their phone, what did they mm-hmm. do? Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to see the authentic self, and yeah. that's the problem. With some of these friendships, like to the, to your point on this topic, is you're not going to forge friendships if you're not living your authentic self. Yeah, that also comes with a good degree of comfort with vulnerability. Like you have to be able to open up yourself to be seen deep inside. But I think it's also interesting how you how you how you mentioned this this whole concept around um, you know what you like to do is being different than who you than who you are and you know, some of the things that our kids like to do aren't necessarily connective, like doesn't get yeah. them working with other, right. you know, with, with, with other, with other people, which I think can be really, can be really challenging. So if you're a parent or your teacher and you're trying to help the kids you work with or the ones you're raising find their authentic self, it sounds to me like one thing you're suggesting is how much time are you creating for them to be bored or be reflective or be unencumbered by a schedule but what else can I as a parent or educator do to help our students get more connected with themselves so they can figure out who they best connect with mm-hmm. out in the out in the world yeah so in therapy I do an exercise and I've done this with adults too and it is painful to do with adults but mm. with kids they're better mm. and um I have them brainstorm. I call it a joy list. And really, I'm just looking for ways that they lower their cortisol, Mm. which is their stress Mm -hmm, hormone. mm -hmm. And I have them list 25. They have to fill a page. And I write it. And they just brainstorm 25 things that bring them joy. So I'm talking a bag of Skittles, Yellowstone, your favorite sweatpants, Sunday morning coffee, Mm -hmm. literally Mm -hmm. anything and everything. Mm -hmm. 
And that is really an exercise in authentic self, mm -hmm. genuine interest, right. and things like that. Right. Okay. So we take this list. Kids are pretty good. You know, they start to pause around 12, number 12, number 15. And then, you know, but they, they get in a rhythm. And they can pretty much complete it. Adults, oh my gosh, Dave, I can't get past number five. And they are literally out of answers. I made it to eight, but I'm also trying to concentrate on you. So I feel like I get to pretty well. Adults are terrible. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things. So this speaks to your authentic self. Because a lot of times I'll say to a kid, well, what do you like? And yeah. they're like, I don't know. And I say, well, okay, if I pulled up your Instagram page right now and I clicked on the top right, who are you following? Yep. What would I see? Yep, yep, yep. Would I see your friends? Would I see celebrities? Would I see cars? Mm -hmm. Would I see dogs? What would I see? Um, so that's an easy, that like, an easy starter yep. on like, what do you like? Well, yep. who are you following on Instagram? Mm -hmm. For me, that's that's a pretty easy one. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I love college sports. Yeah, or love I love cooking. Da -da -da. Yeah, I love right, baking. Right, I love right, photography. Exactly. Yep. But the <clears> exercise, <throat> the joy list, whoo. And then I hold it up to them. And then the second part is I categorize it in these eight things like quiet time, friends, nature, mm -hmm. body, spirituality. And then they get to see on paper really who they are, which is a really good activity. I feel like your teachers could do this mm -hmm. because people just don't know who they are. Like, yeah. you know, your very first question is how do you identify? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Ask a 15-year-old that right. or a 25-year-old and you might as well ask them how to, you know, cure cancer. Yeah. But these little exercises. It's just self-mapping. It's self-mapping, self but right? where are they doing this? Yeah. Right? So right. to even think of 25 things that yep. bring you joy yep. Yep. is sometimes it's heartbreaking to watch people struggle. Yeah, and it really gets to that, what they teach you about mindfulness, which is so hard for a lot of us that are um, really forward-thinking, you know, or get mired in our past. But they really tell you that mindfulness is just about noticing, right? It's just really about noticing your present moment. And so being super descriptive about those, what I call uh, ordinary moments of awe to the to the employees when I presented to them in August. Like, mm -hmm. look, to restore your tank this year, look to the ordinary moments of awe. That's the smile that the kid gives you, get you right. g gives you when he gets the yeah. gets the math problem. You know, it's the sun coming up over the uh, over the practice field when you're out there uh, at practice with with the kids. It's uh, it's the the bow that the kids give energetically in the show. It's ordinary, mm -hmm. but it can be very awe inspiring. And I think that's a way to, to also to map yourself. You don't have to look for these extraordinary things. Right. Like, just notice like right. what things. is it in your moments of yes. during the course of the day that bring you joy and you'll start to get close to yourself. I did chapel homily to the kids earlier this, um, just this last month on the importance of connecting to self, you know, the most important connection that they make. We're going to do people you know, place and purpose over the course of this year, but people is first and the most important person to get connected to is self. And it's on my blog for parents who want to read what I, what I said to the kids to help them kind of discover these, um, you know, start this process of, of working in this direction. But I think it's great advice that you give to, to parents to like how they can do it themselves, <laughs> how they yeah, can, right. you know, how they can do it uh, with their, you know, with their kids and yeah. how much we're helping to pro helping to promote that. So in closing, I guess there where do you stand at this moment? Are you are you ho hopeful and optimistic about the mindset of people and their relationships at this moment as we emerge from the pandemic? Are you cautiously optimistic? Are you concerned? Um, what do you? I'm still concerned for adults. Yeah. I just think they're not doing the personal work that they need yeah. to do. But the kids are just resilient in that way, and also just fresher to the world, right? Yeah. yeah. And I I would say to parents. You're modeling behavior constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, so literally how you handle every single day mm. is a lesson for your children. Mm -hmm. They're either going to subscribe to it mm 
or they're going to delete, yeah. right? And so for adults, I really want them to practice self-care. Like be able to name more than five things that you love to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's not just like I volunteer at my kid's school. No, that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Like what is something you do for you? Yeah. Do you go to yoga? Yep. Do you take a walk around White Rock mm-hmm. every Saturday morning with yep. your best girlfriend? Yep. But I often find parents will just like list off things they do as their parent role. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't count. Yeah. You know, so I would encourage adults to really invest in themselves and figure out their authentic selves as adults. Right. Like you're more than someone's mom. You are more than the financial provider for your family. Right. And that person is important. For kids, I'm all about exposure. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a time of life, middle school, high school, even elementary school. It's like they're trying to decide who they're going to be. It is exposure. It's exposure. So I'm really worried about kids who are really good at something early on, and then they get put in mm-hmm. a shoot, and they're, they're just all in yep. until they have to go to college. Um, so for kids, it's exposure, exposure, exposure. Yep. And you only get exposure if your parents are pushing exposure or you're really good with your downtime. Yeah, the parents are hyper-focused. So read David Epstein's Range Parents, read Dark Horse, which is uh, the book that I really referenced quite a bit in my chapel homily to the kids, which all speak about choices, which speak about um, going to the motivations that lie beneath the things that you actually do. So if you like to be on stage, why is it? And mm-hmm. to keep really getting to the elements mm-hmm. of why that is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. That's that's great advice for everybody. Where can folks... Uh, uh, find your wisdom on the uh, uh, on the internet on social media. Like where can where can they connect to Dr. Kelly Jameson? Yeah, so um, I live on Instagram, Dr. <laughs> Kelly Jameson, uh, but I also have a website, drkellyjameson.com. They can reach out to me, schedule an appointment, book a speaking gig. Um, that's where I live. Yeah, it's great, great website and great and great follow on Instagram. It's great to see you. Thank you. You don't, too. Don't be such a stranger. Come back I know, again. No, I won't. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, I will welcome four members of Parrish's first graduating class in 2007 to the podcast to discuss the origin of their connection as friends at Parrish, the early days of the upper school on the Midway campus, and how they've been able to sustain their connections to one another and to other Parrish peers since their graduation. Delightfully, these four friends constitute two married couples, Air Force pilot Captain Ryan Siebert and his wife Sarah and Dr. Jesse Hernandez and his wife Katina will join me to share their unique stories and recollections of their days as members of Parrish's pioneer class of 2007. We so look forward to bringing this episode to you. And until then, thanks for listening to the From My Angle podcast.